How much of your potential are you leaving on the table? How much of your training are you leaving to chance? Are your periodized workouts the right one for your phenotype? What the heck's a phenotype? If you're wondering how to take your performance to the next level, maybe it's time to start thinking about a coach. And that's why I brought Beth Leisure Hudson to the Athlinks podcast. We jump around quite a bit and talk about how Beth uses tools like Training Peaks and Whoop to measure and track performance, rest, and heart rate to guide the workouts of herself and the athletes that she coaches. We talk about the importance of knowing your phenotype and structuring your workouts around maximizing your strengths. And we talk about her own cycling journey through self-doubt, discovery, and delight in the world of cycling. So if you're ready for the show, crank it up and let's go. Let's go. Welcome to the Athlings Podcast. I am your host, Troy Busseau, coming to you from the sunny streets of Broomfield, Colorado. It is December 18th, and this is episode 22. Hello, Beth. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Troy? I'm doing very well. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Indeed. I'm very privileged to be here. <laughs> well, the privilege is all mine. So today on the podcast, we have Beth Leisure Hudson. You are a um, an elite level, well, describe, like, I don't know if it's elite level, pro level coach, but a cycling coach um, and a an elite level rider so maybe pro coach elite rider did i get that right yes more or less i would just call myself a competitive cycling coach and occasionally i get to work with elites and pros perfect and and then i'm an an age i'm an elite age grouper okay got it got it got it yeah cool excellent well you um You sort of took 2020 and just said, like, hold my beer. I can up this ante big time. So you've (laughs) you've had um, two very interesting side roads in 2020. You uh, caught COVID, uh, put you out for a little bit. You came all the way back to the point that you actually hit some PBs, your um, your power highs. So you were you were maxing out your power. So you not only recovered, but you bettered yourself just in right. time then to get T-boned and gang tackled by a herd of deer going 26 miles <laughs> per hour on your gravel bike. Although I'm happy to report the bike survived, um, yeah. which is great. <laughs> Broke your pelvis and achieved a power high again. Yes. That's, it's been, uh, it's been, uh, two, two uh, double comeback stories. Yeah. Well, we, we rarely get one in a, in a lifetime, much less two. So it's been, <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, it's cool. So I want to dig deep into that. And basically, so let me back up just a hair here. So the, the premise, you were connected to me through Training Peaks. And uh, Training Peaks is right up the road. Uh, full disclosure, Training Peaks is not paying for this. They're not sponsoring it in any way. We're good friends with them as a, as a business and you know, professionally and personally. We love those guys. But any opinions or otherwise expressed here in the podcast um, will be completely unfettered by the evils of capitalism. So uh, feel free to give your full unfettered opinion on that. But my main premise when I reached out to them to try to connect me with some people was, you know, we all sort of have this intuition about coaching and nutrition. We know coaching is good. We know nutrition is good. It's not like you would ever put your kids in like a football league without a coach and just let them run around like, uh, like savages. Um, And yet I know, I know a lot of people with $10,000 bikes that don't 
don't use a coach. I know a lot of people with hundred or $220 carbon racing flats that don't take their nutrition seriously. So I, I kind of wanted to give one, enlighten myself because I know I need a coach and yet I've only had one for a brief period in my um, athletic career. So part of this is a little bit um, hoping somebody out there can sell me on, you know, getting a coach and taking all of this a little bit more seriously and showing me the benefits of that. Um, but for you, you know, like you're clearly a coach who's out there eating your own dog food. Um, it's kind of a product term for like, you're practicing what you preach, you're, you know, you can look at your results, your two comeback stories this year, hitting, you know, achieving power highs both times. And so I just wanted to kind of get with you, talk about the benefits of working with a coach, um, you know, the benefits of working with a tool like training peaks and logging that stuff. And, and just logging your KOMs on Strava doesn't count, like actually getting into a tool and digging in and, and analyzing the data and things. So that's, um, that's a little bit of background on why I wanted to have you on and what I hope to accomplish today for the show. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah. So let's let's take a, a bigger step back even then. So we're we're going back through time. So how did you how did you get here? How did you kind of arrive at the um, at the elite level of coaching and performance? I started like most people do as a, an older rider in America. Uh, I started riding because someone told me to exercise for my mental health. I was yeah. I was uh, coping with a uh, a, a life setback, a relational setback as a young woman, younger woman in my late twenties. And, um, someone said, why don't you exercise while you wait to heal from that and wait to see kind of what your purpose purpose is. And, uh, what was ironic about that is part of the stress I was dealing with and the trauma I was coping with had to do with some financial losses. So I didn't have a lot of options, but I did have this heavy bike in my parents' bar in this old steel Schwinn and started to ride it and rode it about 15 minutes and thought, boy, is that great. And then I got up to three miles or something and mm. thought that was tremendous. And then I started seeing these strange people on bikes in Lycra in <laughs> groups <laughs> in uh, that were a fashion statement. And I, it's it strangely excited me. Okay. I was also inspired by quite a few athletes um, in the years prior to that, just kind of their comeback stories. And I, I was I was very fortunate. I fell into a group ride scenario, and the the club members were friendly, and they got me involved, and they got me better equipment, and it kind of took off from there. You know, cycling is about community. Sport can be about community. Um, their concern for me helped me heal. Physical exercise just helps you me mentally, no matter where you are yeah. and what you're dealing with. Um, and 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 there were some spiritual aspects of it that were healing for me because I there was a flow in it. I was seeing provision. I was seeing vision. I was having a vision of what it could lead to. Um, and, and so there was a spiritual, there was an, there was a spiritual healing that in the sense that you can make a mistake, you can make a bad choice or you, you can have bad choices thrust upon you and there's still a redemption. Mm, interesting. 
So this this kind of initial part of the journey from finding the steel bike to getting into the club to getting um, kind of a uh, an unofficial sponsorship where you've got you know kind of a benefactor give, giving you some gear and, and upgrading some components. What is the time frame here? Is this a year in? Ten years in? Months? Oh no, it was months. Yeah, I I went from riding with them in the in the summer. By that winter, there was a women's specific learn to race clinic. Mm. Uh, very rare phenomenon in those days. It's still a rare phenomenon. And um, put on by some very capable women in the Washington, D.C. metro area. And after 12 weeks, I felt pretty confident wow. about getting in a mass start environment. So what, what year was this, roughly? 1991. Okay. Very specifically yeah. then. Um, so the um, was this all road cycling at this point? Yes. Road cycling. Okay. And um, so three months, basically three months in, 12-week program, you, you had mentioned some redemption stories that had, that had caught your eye in the past. Are we talking like, uh, you know, kind of the NBC wide world of sports Ironman type stories or, or what, what, where did that fall in with you? Um, honestly, I was inspired by a baseball player named Oral Hershiser. Oh yeah. I think he pitched a perfect game in the world series. Um, and he, I don't think at that point, I think he was a consistent person. He wasn't a superstar, but he was a consistent person who worked hard and who had a lot of faith. Mm. And that was inspiring. Interesting. Okay. And okay. then as and then I honestly, some of the stress that I dealing had been dealing with relationally had to do with a marriage that failed. And the reasons it failed were, was because my husband had a drug addiction. Mm. And, um, I was pretty naive about all that. Uh, and, um, so coming to terms with that as a spiritual person, what does that mean for me moving forward? Um, is it, is that a lifelong mistake? Can I overcome, can I overcome it? And mm -hmm. I had so many examples of, of admirable men from my local cycling community. I know you don't hear that very often, <laughs> <laughs> but I really had that, that, and it was inspiring to me. It was healing. Okay. So you were sort of taking some of the blame on of your husband's transgressions and then wondering if you could sort of redeem yourself from that. And then you start to come in contact with these, as you say, admirable men in the cycling community around you. Yes. Oh, and, men and women, yeah. men and women. But I was, I was, I was healing from a male wound, from a relationship wound. Got it. My husband betrayed me in his drug addiction as addicts do. They betray their loved ones. And, um, the blame I was taking on myself is why did I make this choice in the first place? Mm. Got it. Um, and how was I going to recover from it? Got it. And so was there a, um, there's kind of two ways to look at, um, uh, exercise and bike cycling and things like that is the sort of meditative aspects of it on one hand and just living in your mind and, and being able to process those things in a, 
you know, carve out an hour, five hours, whatever the time frame may be of where you're really in your own head. There's that side. And then there's the achievement side where all of a sudden you are pushing yourself mentally and physically to places that you've never been before. Uh, which side did you lean toward or were you right down the middle in your own redemption story? I, I think uh, another uh, factor that needs to be mentioned is the, the, the power of community mm. um, coming alongside you to help you. And that's really what, that's what really what great coaching is to segue in, back to that idea. Okay. Yeah. I, I, the coaching that I was getting wasn't formal at that point. Um, I guess you could sort of call the coaching that was I got in the women's race clinic as formal coaching because they, that's what they were there to do. They were there to teach us. But a lot of what I got was just informal, informal friendship and community and, and assistance learning what is a complex athletic act activity from these people I was seeing, you know, multiple times a yeah. week at that point on group rides and then little trips and stuff. Yeah. Were you relative? I mean, it sounds like you were relatively isolated from that, like in your marriage or even growing up, you hadn't been around this type of community in the past. No, not, not, I had some high school cross country running experience, but mm -hmm. I got injured and didn't have, I didn't have sports type parents who knew how to, help me through that. So I just quit because mm. I thought, well, I'm injured. I can't do this. I didn't <laughs> wow. know you can rehab and I didn't know you can rehab and actually come back better wow. like in 2020. Yeah. I was going to say the, <laughs> the irony exists now <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so you start to build this community. You start to see a sort of another way forward. I like that. Yeah, you're, you're right. I, I, that was a glaring omission where I kind of lived within, I think that that speaks to, I guess, who I am um, when it comes to these things, a little bit more of a loner and, and, and introvert. But the the side that you mentioned, the communal, the communal side, the community building side of the cycling aspects and where coaching fits in with that. And so you, you go through this program and now you're staring up at your first race. That had to have been, I mean, given what you just sort of walked us through with you know, very little uh, involvement in this and exposure to this all of a sudden. Were you a competitive person going into this phase of your life? Would you have considered yourself competitive? I'm a competitive person, yes, okay. in, in the sense that I want to push myself toward excellence. And sometimes if that involves comparison with peers, so be it. But mostly it's an, it's, um, an internal drive to be excellent. Okay. And so... From that sense, yeah, I, I was I was competitive. Um, uh, I was like that in school. I was like that in, for job opportunities. So okay. that that part of it wasn't new to me. Okay. What what was new to me was school and job achievement for me came so much easier than athletic achievement. Mm. Um especially in the beginning. And so, yes, I had some basic race skills, which was more than perhaps uh, entry category beginning racers did in those days who weren't, who didn't go through that a women's, you know, race skills clinic. But I was still dropped in the parking lot. Mm. 
the first <laughs> it was a training race and I, I was literally dropped and it was it was a there was a big group there and they started fast and they were gone before I got out of the parking lot. Wow. So my goal was ne- the next week to make it to the first turn. And then the, the week after that to make it down the first straightaway after the first turn. And I just kept, I just kept doing, I just kept segmenting my achievement with those tiny little steps. Wow. And so yeah. are, how are you thinking about um, like, training and putting those things together? Is it just kind of like sheer willpower at this point? Try just trying to stay up with the group? Are you being scientific at all? Was that, was that kind of an initial part of you, how you thought about cycling? I would say that segmenting, segmenting overwhelming things down into small steps would, is probably a personal strength, but mm-hmm. I had no idea how yeah. to train. I had no idea how to even set myself up for the race start yeah. strategically, tactically. I mean, it's one thing to go out and practice learning how to to corner and do a little pace line work. It's another to know what are, what are the tactics, strategies, and technical skills necessary to successfully navigate the start of a, of a mass start event. Yeah. And so, because in life, you, you just don't go from zero to as hard as you can immediately. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and so many times, ju- just putting more force behind something might just be sending you faster in the wrong direction, right? Yes, right, right. Yeah. And so that first race, you get dropped in the parking lot literally before the race has even begun. Second week, you get dropped on the first corner, let's say. are you? <laughs> what's happening in between the two races? Are you starting to up your training? Are you starting to ask questions? Like, how did you approach the deficiency in, in bridging that gap? I started reading whatever books were available, talking to local racers, because the, the more I got involved in the community, the 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 more information I guess was available to me at that time, but I still didn't have any concept about periodized training or training specific to your, your strengths, your body type or anything like that. There was no, there was not a lot of information available to me at that time. Um, I know that I got a rudimentary training program from, from a local racer, uh, because, um, in that first season, I got sick, probably from overtraining, and um, and I came back from that sickness too quickly, did too much, and and got a little sicker. So they said you 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 need to read up more about this, and they they sort of sketched me out a plan and gave me some basic rules. But um, it was a long time before I got really good advice about how to train. Okay. So it was all sort of on the fly kind of experiential learning. Okay. And then I was loving it. So I was just riding more. I was doing more group rides. I was doing harder group rides. I was finding better group rides, whatever group rides I could find to do that were harder, whatever racing I could do with my club team. Um, It was all about getting, gaining experience, which is not something I always recommend at this point because Mm. You can get a lot of experiences that teach you how to be pack fodder. Mm. What you want are quality experiences that are stepwise, a progression of your skills, technically, tactically, but also mentally, how to handle performance pressure uh, and, and 
um, what are the skills needed to be at the front? Very different than what are the skills needed to be in the race. Yeah, you and I talked the other day um, when we started this, and one of the, I think, concerns that you might have had was that the the way that coaching um, and the science around coaching and performance and all of these things tends to change. They don't, it's not just you know what worked 30 years ago. Um, you know, these things hopefully advance uh, through time. And so you didn't want to get uh, into a situation where you were giving advice that then becomes sort of obsolete over the next few months here as people uh, continue right. to download the <laughs> podcast. But the, um, like, as you look back at that and, and you think about coaching things like you know, what you just said, where you sort of pack fodder versus leading from the front. And, you know, there's obviously front running versus uh, uh, running from, from the back is a very different set of strategies and tactics. When you're coaching somebody, um, and we'll get deeper into the coaching side, I think a little bit later, but when you're coaching somebody, do you look like, do certain athletes just have certain predispositions to, you should always front run if you're this type of an athlete or, you know, or you're a better sprinter at the end, that type of thing. Like, do you, do you, how much of that comes in, into, um, into the equation when you're coaching a specific athlete? Well, before we had uh, really fine met metrics from training peaks and, and their partner, um, software, uh, WKO five now version five, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't, or at least I didn't understand physiologically this idea of phenotype in those days. I mean, we kind of all roughly do where we say, oh yeah, such and such is a sprinter and such and such is a climber. Um, but we didn't have sort of the data to back that up. Now we have better metrics that we uh, up to date. If you, if, it, if you put good data in the model, you get good data out and you can help, uh, help an athlete determine that more or less early. Even so, if I have a climber and they're a climber phenotype and they're, they want to road race, they still need to know how to navigate a pack sprint because in a climbing situation at a high level, you have to, you have, to have pack sprint kind of knowledge to navigate, to get the, the whole shot, if you will, into the climb. You have to have that kind of pack fighting skill to know how to get the good position going into the climb. We've seen that in tours in recent years with GC riders who had to fight on strange race stage days like um, cobbled days where the position determined to help determine the GC or at least help them not lose the GC by having kind of like a sprint, a sprinter pack skills kind of mentality. So what mm -hmm. I try to do is, um, in addition to the physical, the, the, the training based on their physiology, their true physiology, their, their strengths, I also try to teach them a broad base of skills at the lowest level that we can, we can do that. Because if you keep moving up the categories quickly, it's just going to be harder to learn those basic skills. Your competitors are better and better. Okay. So why not learn them at the bottom? At the same time, it builds confidence and you learn a dominant mentality versus a pack fodder mentality. There's less pressure. No one's really watching you if you're a cat five, four, or three. Mm -hmm. uh, and even if you're a star junior, if you if you stay in your age 
categories for a while and avoid sort of experiential race selection and work on those skills, when the time comes for you to go up to, say, national team or an elite level stage race where you might be racing with adult men, then you have the skill. It's already there and you're confident about it. You're not trying to learn the skill with, you know, uh, let's say you're a 16-year-old a junior who weighs 140. You're not trying yeah. to learn that skill with a 180-pound Man. Okay. So let's let's take a step back then about the phenotype. Um, so one, it, kind of give me the definition and how you determine a phenotype. And then it sounds like you're saying almost kind of delay that a little bit and don't focus so much on that in the beginning, but really build the more um, general skills. So let's let's talk about phenotype for a second. Well, phenotype really is a physiological uh, term, and it's and it, it's determined by your strengths after testing, it's all, it's all in a program, a software program. And, and, and honestly, I'm going to leave that up to other experts. You, you interview to talk about the science of that. Okay. Um, but like, but how, what do the tests look like? What, what kind of testing am I going to be taking to determine my phenotype? Well, the basic power duration curve testing is, Typically, a sprint test, a one-minute test, a five-minute test, a twenty-minute test. Okay. Uh, you can get the power duration curve. Four four numbers, four separate tests, really gets you a solid curve. But the but the data from your own training and racing also feeds the curve. Uh, but you do want max efforts, and from that from that body of data, it spits out a prediction of what you you're going to be better at than others. So if you the the power duration curve is a hyperbolic curve that obviously the shorter the time, the more power you can put out over time. Uh, the more, the more time, the less power. So the curve falls in a, in a, it's high in the beginning and it falls on a curve and then it goes flat because in theory we can hold a certain power for infinity, right? Mm -hmm. It's our lifetime power. Call it, call it your lifetime power. But really, even on a bike for five hours, you could hold a power um, cycling. So, however, the shape of that curve varies based on your phenotype. So if you're a sprinter, that peak at the beginning is going to be really high and it's mm -hmm. going to be pretty steep. The curve is going to be dropped steeply. Whereas a time trialist, that curve might be, look pretty f flat. Mm, okay. So that's, that's sort of the science the short okay. science answer on that. Okay. So it, it basically, and I definitely, go ahead. I definitely pay attention to that, but, but you still need in order to move up the categories to even use your strength as a, unless you're not, unless you're going to be a time trialist, who's not going to race mass start at all. Yeah. You still have to have skills to know how to keep yourself safe and have fun in mass start events. Got it. Got it. Okay, so the, the the phenotype is basically just kind of what which what which one of those categories based on your natural ability to sustain a certain amount of power over time. Yes. Yeah. As a yes. as yeah. a distillation, the Reader's Digest version. We can. I'm sure we could have people on who could talk <laughs> about it for an hour. It's it's really which energy systems yeah. do you have naturally in abundance over others. And so for those, are you a, are you a believer in, in working on your weaknesses or really expanding on your strengths? Do you have a philosophy when it comes to those types of things? I do. And I'm a strength 
person. Okay. I think work on your strengths, use your strengths, focus on your strengths. Okay. Yes, you still have to there there's some there are some things within that package of strengths that are stronger than others and if you if you want to call that working on your weaknesses, I think at that point it's basically semantics. Yeah. But I'm not a believer in if you if your phenotype is a time trialist, then probably it's a waste of time for you to do, you know, sprint training all year. And it certainly isn't going to lead to success in time trials. Although it is a misconception that some sprint training, um, some sprint training is going to beef up that power duration curve and, and supplement that time trial ability. And then it it becomes a degree of, well, how much are you adapting? And that's what the technologies provided through training peaks transition with powerful analytics software like WKO5 and things really comes into play okay you can track the effectiveness of all that okay so you're you're a big believer in saying okay you're a climber become a better climber rather than saying you're a climber go build up your your strengths okay but then i'm assuming things like bike handling skills those types of things are the weaknesses we should all be working on well sure yeah yeah Yeah. and so your safety and mine (laughs) indeed Yeah, I, I think a lot of, you know, the the first time I got into, um, I came from a purely, I only owned a time trial bike for the first, I think, eight or so years that I was riding, other than when I was a kid, you know, and I had bikes. But um, I was, I went from triathlon and then moved to Colorado and then immediately got into cyclocross. And I, I, I would say every single time I went around a curve, I, I was laying on my back. I mean, it was, um, it was amazing how poor my bike skills were. I never would have, I knew they were bad. I knew they weren't, you know, certainly elite. I I mean, it was like a, I was a kindergarten level bike handler at that point. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And and that's really one of the the arguments of what's called the long-term athletic development model too, is that you want to, you want kids today to be lifers as sportsmen whether they reach a high competitive level or not, we want everyone to, to, to keep running, to keep riding, to keep swimming. And so there are basic skills in life in general, running, jumping, throwing, but there's also basic bike skills. And, and yes, if I were your coach and you were a time trialist, I would have wanted you to learn how to corner really well, because actually there are corners in time trials too. Yeah. So how do you, um, so kind of going back to your, th- these days where, you, you know, again, you get dropped in the parking lot, then you, you know, you keep up, you keep up a little bit more and things like that. When does that start to, um, again, you're kind of going through brute force at this point. You're not, you're not taking a scientific approach, it sounds like, to this. At what point do you start, like, are your wheels already turning to saying, okay, how am I putting this together? I'm assuming the notion of you becoming a coach at this point is just like, <laughs> you might as well become an astronaut. Um, <laughs> but at what point, like, do you start getting better at riding, better at riding, and then it starts to transition, like, okay, I'm noticing that this system, system systematic approach is really starting to pay dividends. Hmm. Well, remember... What brought me into this was a crisis. So I had to have the big spiritual questions answered mm. first. Uh, I think I touched upon a story where 
yes, I was getting dropped in the parking lot. I was making prog. I was making progress, but there weren't there weren't those feel good type of outcomes with that progress quite yet. And I was starting to get discouraged because remember I had made what I thought was a bad choice, and it mm. had led to a lot of pain and suffering. And I didn't want to do that again in my life. I wanted to be, you know, characterized by good choices, which which led to good outcomes. I didn't want to beat myself up against the wall and and have nothing to show for it. So yeah. I really had a conversation. I think I told you with God, who was my coach at the time, because the spiritual aspect was was the driver uh, because of how much I had in, in invested in not wanting to make an error, a life mm-hmm. error, which is really a spiritual question. I think it's a faith question. Yeah. So you were and almost more that, afraid of futility at this point than anything else. Yes. And, and so I was on my way to a, a, yet another race with my little club team as a beginner racer. And I was just kind of like bargaining. And I said, look, if I don't see some results, I'm done. Mm. And, and so, because that'll be a sign to me that I'm not supposed to do this. This is not part of my purpose. And that was the race I had a breakthrough. Mm. And I didn't have a breakthrough because of anything special I did. It was the same old thing. I did. I, I used whatever I'd learned that day and built upon it. But I was still there in the field when a dog came out, about to get dropped, when a dog came on, onto the course, slowed the leaders and the whole peloton down long enough for me to have enough recovery to stay in. And I took seventh place. Wow. And I think I told you that, you know, seven is the number of perfection in Christianity. Yeah. It's just, it's considered the number of completion. And to me, it was a sign, keep at this. It's you're, it's going to lead to something. That was yeah. a big breakthrough day for me. Huh. And then it just built, it just built from there. And then I think the more looking back, because this was quite a while before I had formal coaching, I think what that led to is just more exposure to more people, more ideas, more reading. Um, I did start to journal what I was doing at that point. I started to log it in a log book. I still have all those notebooks. I have so many notebooks because there wasn't an online program like training peaks at that time. Right. And, and, uh, I just started to keep track of it all that, doing keeping track of everything seemed important yes and i would have to say st- the structure of it was important for a lot of reasons and so so like i mean some of this is just as you said is is not necessarily seeing some grand light at the end of the tunnel like oh great i'm going to go be an elite cyclist now it's just it's just getting the I don't know, fortitude or the the green light to then go to the next race or go out for the yes. next training session. Yes. And that point was something that was really startling to me when I, after I made the transition into coaching, what I always ask when I'm working with a new athlete, what is your dream goal? Mm. And, you know, I, I, in the beginning, I always expected some big answer. Yeah. You know, I want to go to the Olympics or I want to be in the Tour de France. And every time I was shocked by what someone <laughs> would say, all the goals are different. Yeah. All the dreams are different. Uh, some people are just, as you say, well, I want to see where I can get to next. Yeah. And then they, and then they get there. And then I want to see where 
we get to next. And even when I provide them with a safe environment of, look, I'm not going to talk to anyone about your dreams. They don't have to be realistic. Just what are they? Even when I pitch it like that, sometimes it's as simple as systematic improvement. And do you, do you encourage that? Like, do you, have you noticed in the athletes that you've coached, the bigger the dream, the bigger the result, or is there, it, does it just vary by person? I do actually. I, I would have to say there is a linear relationship with how big the dream and how capable they are of achieving. Do you, do you sense that like the lower the dream, the plateau comes a little bit lower and earlier? Yes. Interesting. Interesting. I feel like we innately we know what we're we either know what we're capable of or our minds constrain us before our our work ethic does. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because the you know, we the what tends to get publicized and um the stories that we know are these comeback stories. I mean, you don't have to look further than Lance Armstrong. Um, and you wonder with a guy like that in a story, and because it's not just Lance, there's a thousand of these stories, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, amputations, sickness, these types of things where the comeback nearly always seems to be bigger than like much bigger in order of magnitude, bigger than what that person would have originally set as a goal, if that mm. makes sense. And yes, so I does. wonder if that, facing, uh, death, adversity, whatever it is. Uh, so there's a, just sort of a mental trigger that says, well, if I'm going to come back versus, you know, if I'm just going to take a step forward as a, you know, as a normal story, I'm just going to, okay, I'm going to go from me today to tomorrow. I want to do X race. If I'm laying in a hospital bed or something and, and if I have to come all the way back, I basically have like a, a clean whiteboard in front of me in terms of where I want to put that finish line. You know, it's not just one yes. step in front of me. It could literally be the Olympics. It could be, uh, you know, Ironman, Tour de France, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It is. And, and in this year of COVID where we've seen so much loss, uh, we've all, uh, I, I think we have yet to know fully the gains that will be, have been made this year in each of our lives, but also in our 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 uh, progress as society, in society. The, the techno the technological advances, what we've learned. I think suffering and loss can always lead to uh, an incredible success. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the basics of physiology. You, you toil, you toil under a great strain, and then you rest, and there's a compensation, which, which uh, you know, yeah, uh, leads to a better fitness. So I think suffering and loss and setbacks uh, are are kind of like training stress. It's 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 part of it. That's such a simple analogy. I'd never really thought about it. And just in that simple of terms of just, you're just sort of tearing down that emotional muscle and then it's just about rebuilding it. Yeah. All my favorite athletes are, are the tough ones that have been through it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I, I uh, spoke with Eric McElvaney, who's going to be on the podcast, who is a below the leg amputee, um, 
IED in Afghanistan. It was a very similar thing. And that was one of the questions that I asked him was, you know, the day before or five minutes before this happens, you have a life in front of you that probably didn't involve things like Ironmans and marathons and those types of things. And then it's this facing of this tragedy or this opportunity for catharsis that then, you know, leads Mm. you all the way back into a completely different life. Yes. Yeah. And you know, before my, before my, um, before the accident with the deer, I was congratulating myself of how well I was handling the whole COVID Mm -hmm. period. Um, yes, I'd had the illness in March, but relatively, um, easy recovery from that. And not certainly not like we're hearing on the news and all the tragedies people are experiencing, even as an athlete, it was not that tragic. It was a, it was a typical respiration, respiratory illness type of re-ramp and comeback. Which certainly seems to be the case uh, most often that, you know, certainly what, what we have seen in, in the data and the news, et cetera, is that fitness and health is absolutely the way through this. Yes. And, but I was, I was, I was kind of coasting at that point because now don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I was training Mm -hmm. and I was training in a structured way and I was training toward a goal, a very big goal in the future, a tangible goal with a date. Uh, however, when I got, and I, and I was actually coming, I was finally coming into that feeling as an athlete where you are on top of the gear and you just know that your power is coming. Finally, you have trained to train to the point that now your training can lead to some really significant progress. Okay. It is so rare to feel that because mm. sometimes in training in your, in your in, physiologically, you're kind of slogging through it, even with proper recovery. And then there, there are these periods in training where you're breaking through. And I was on the cusp of that. Even on that ride that day, I was seeing some remarkable things in my data. And that's why as soon as it happened, even before I hit the, hit the road after T-boning the deer, I was heartbroken because mm. I was about to, to go really hard up a hill to set a new best in a power, in a power goal I had after so much fatigue, after yeah. so many kilojoules. And I couldn't do it because I was thwarted by this deer herd. And so I was heartbroken about that. Um, but my heartbreak lasted probably about six hours. Okay. Uh, in the hospital, I have never had a break that serious. And mm. breaking breaking your pelvis is pretty serious. Yeah. It was a stable fracture, which means it didn't involve surgery. But still, there I couldn't put any kind of pressure on the pedals for 12 weeks. Wow. That's a long time for an athlete who is just on the wave, uh, uh, the cusp of yeah. experiencing something remarkable for the first time after years of working on it again. And uh, I... I was really heartbroken in the hospital. So I asked for a chaplain again. This is this, I had the spiritual question. Is this some kind of sign? <laughs> you know, here I am about to break through again. Yeah. And I have this incredible setback. 
does that mean I'm on the wrong path? And the chaplain, she was awesome. She said, you know what? God doesn't just speak to you on your worst days. He also speaks to you on your best days. Was he telling you before the deer came out and caused this crash that you should stop? And I was like, oh no, I, 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 was, <laughs> I was about to hit it. Like I haven't hit it for years. Yeah. And she said, well, then I don't think that this is a sign. I think it's just a random suffering in a year where people are having great loss. Yeah. And, um, this is, uh, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is a way that I can relate to them. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess if you're going to, if you're going to listen on the good days, you have to listen on the bad days, right? The positive that's signs. Right. Yeah. And so, um, the, but what I what I what I also felt in the hospital was, yes, I had been training structured before, but I, I kind of was dilly dallying, waiting to see what was going to happen. As I was shocked, but they got me on my feet within 24 hours and asked me to start physical therapy. Wow! And and from that moment, I was like, "That's it, I'm drilling it." Okay. Now I'm serious. Now I'm serious. Okay. It, it, it really ignited that time is short. You don't know what's coming. You better take advantage of it when, when, when you've got it. And I can't dilly dally now. Yeah. So that's a perfect transition then. Okay. So let's talk about the not dilly dallying. Cause I really want to dig in a little bit to um, not only your methodology as a coach, but just in coaching in general, the structure of how to, uh, yours is going to be obviously specific to bike. Um, we just had Claire Bird on the podcast a couple episodes ago where she hit a PR in in the marathon because she had never done speed work, never been on a track, never been on, um, mm. you know, looking at speed work at all. And it was a pretty mm -hmm. big gain. It was like a 20 minute PR um, on the marathon. Wow. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so I just, I want to talk specifically about when you, when you're sort of up on this, you know, broken pelvis and thinking about your recovery and you're thinking to yourself, all right, I'm done dilly dallying. I'm going to approach this. I'm going to attack this. Again, you're eating your own dog food. You know how to coach. And so therefore, you know how to train, you know, the inputs and what the outputs should be. So let's talk a little bit about the inputs, how you train Let's talk a little bit maybe about periodization and things like that and some of those concepts because I, I suspect a lot of people listening to this just, you know, they do what most of us do, which is I'll go for a long run or a long ride. Um, I'll sprint up that hill, but there's no real structure to it and no understanding of what that structure can bring and the magic that it can unlock. Okay. Well, periodization is basically st structured training coupled with structured rest. And periodization um, is proven. It's 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 decades and decades of research of showing the benefits of structured training, and structured along with this idea of structured training or periodized training comes um, the concept of working on various energy systems, when and how much and how long, because in road cycling. You do have a you do have an end sprint. You do, but you also may have a long climb or a hard section that requires tempo threshold type fitness. You also might have syncopated type racing, like in crits, where there's a lot of speed changes. 
But even in a road race, there can be speed changes or a lot of variability of effort. Okay. And so you have to you have to train multiple systems, energy systems, and some of those systems kind of compete with each other. This is very simplistic physiology. It's much more complicated than that. They all they all work together too, but they kind of if you work one, then you you may lose a little in another. And so it's really it's really a uh, what hasn't been proven is what is the best periodization periodization scheme. Okay. And the difficulties of trying to prove that are, 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 you know, have to do with how you how you set that up and who's going to be willing to let you experiment on mm-hmm. them long term like that. But you know, the, some of the principles of physiology we already know: variation works, rest works, overload works. Um, and so, periodization is typically a plan which takes those physiological principles and puts them into a structure that addresses the athletic demand of whatever your goal is. Okay. That's, that's sort of the general way to put it. Okay. So does it, 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 let me give you what I understand about periodization and then you can correct me from where that is. So typically, um, you would pick kind of an end date. So call it an A race. And then let's say that's four months out or say six months out. Then you work Mm -hmm. backward from there and you start to determine which systems you're going to be working. So you might start out with a lot of base work, kind of long, consistent days, intermixing in recovery, which I, I do want to dive into recovery in just a second and how important that is, because I think that is okay. far and away the most overlooked piece of this. Um, and so I might, you know, again, my training then changes slowly or gradually week by week over that six months six month period where I'm sort of transitioning maybe from long, slow endurance type stuff all the way leading into where then I'm doing some harder, um, you know, speed work, those types of things. And, and the, the, I've broken my season down into different periods where I'm working different systems. Yes. That that's in general. Okay. What I'm talking about now, there's much debate about what base looks like these days. Okay. Um, there is a lot of individual variability based on unique phenotype talking, you know, an individual, individual characteristics of physiology. There's still principles that can be followed in general, but we have so much data at our disposal, at our disposal today. And so many good tools to help track what's really going on that I'm starting to move away from certain periodization schemes I favored in the past to um, individualizing the periodization based on their personal matrix okay. and metrics. And that, and that's, uh, I have, I mean, it's. Is that as simple as saying, like, if I've already got a pretty good engine for, you know, distance, then you might just focus more on things like speed and that type of thing, or, or like what, what individually am I bringing to the table that you might look at? Well, let me give you two separate example athletes. One athlete is a is a, a high level executive in a big company okay. who has limited time to train. With his, his periodization is undulating because I can get him periods of volume and load at specific times, and then his work demands become overwhelming and at other times 
I cannot get him as much load and volume. So it's it's very challenging to do a build towards something with that. But I can still make gains with him using an undulating pattern. As long as the principle of overload still applies, and I'm looking at his personal data to make sure that we're we're still making gains, if I undulate his periodization, I can make gains. I could not put him on a strict linear periodization program like I could with a junior athlete okay. who has very, very few uh, outside commitments can say, can say, I'm going to be riding eight hours in December, but by July, I'm going to be riding 14 hours. And there's pretty much nothing that's going to hinder that. Got it. Okay. You know, from happening. So, so talk about overload. Yeah. Uh, so overload, uh, is a, it's a principle of physiology. Uh, it's kind of like, um, you have to, you have, you have to have so much work in order to stress your body enough to get a training adaptation via rest. Okay. Uh, and, and then once you do that, you should see a progression. Um, so what, what many non-coached athletes tend to do is go out and do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of, and which often involves a lot of group rides, or if you're an introvert, maybe it involves a lot of solo rides and not enough group rides, but it's kind of the same. And they think year after year, I'm going to get better because I'm building on this basis of the same. Mm. Well, you make it better because your skills get better your confidence grows, your technical abilities get better. You, you may become more efficient. Um, but in, in terms of creating overload for continual gain, it's not going to happen. You can't do the same thing and expect that. There has to be varying demand on, a, you know, increasing yeah. over time. So how do I know when I'm properly overloading in the right areas? Like th- this is oh. where I think, you know, what you just said, I'm totally guilty of, which is I kind of have a vague notion. Like I've got a long, slow day. I've got a kind of a tempo day. I've got a speed day, but I don't have any real clue. Am I running long enough? Am I running slow or fast enough? Am I running enough intervals? Am I, you know, so this is where, I think a coach and a tool like, you know, again, like a training peaks or something um, can really, well, not even can help. You sort of need this in a way to really dial in. Like, yes, you are now scientifically starting to move those dials versus just randomly throwing levers, which is frankly what I always feel like I'm doing in my training. Well, we're, we're tracking data that, that represents physiological systems. Um, and along with that, we're also tracking your recovery. There are metrics within it that show improvement and that show overload. Okay. So um, let's come back to that because you want to know about that. Do I have time or do you want to go straight to recovery metrics? Uh, whichever one makes sense to talk about first. I'll leave it in your hands. We've got time to talk with, both for sure. On the training side, so you're doing a long day, a speed day. And um, you mentioned something else, but how do you know that that's what you need? So what I can do is I can look at what you're doing and I can tell you if you're 
you're getting gaining an adaptation from that okay. by looking at um, can you hold that same pace, shall we call it? And and in our sport, cycling, we use power, but can you hold that same pace and have an improved heart rate or show central adaptations in other ways? Rate of perce- uh, rate of perceived exertion is less. Can you um, in the long ride? Can you hold that same heart rate and that same pace three hours after you've been doing it? Mm. Or is there a change there? And there are metrics to track that. Okay. Um, in On your speed day, first of all, are you adapting to this kind of speed work, this particular interval at all? You may not be. You may not have the physiological components to adapt that much to that. And is that, is that, choice costing you somewhere else oh, explain that uh, so is this like a slow twitch versus a fast twitch type of thing or uh, explain that i never really thought about the idea that i'm doing work that may not benefit me at all <laughs> so i'm a small lean woman and i could do sprint training every day and i'm not going to be able to excel on the track in any kind of sprint event hmm. okay. I, I, i'm just not going to adapt to that i don't yeah. have that physiological profile. But would your sprint days um, not help you like on a climb, let's say, like building that sprint power? Does that, I mean, or is it just sort of a nominal, like you'd be better off doing this type of workout? It's true. Some anaerobic power work with full recovery called anaerobic uh, capacity and some anaerobic work with short recoveries can make me a better climber. But to what degree, how long do I need to do it? Uh, what what other things could I be doing with a greater benefit? Yeah. All that can be tracked with metrics. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's the point is that, sure, it will help you. But if you were to do this exercise, it would help you three times as much. Exactly. Wow. And it might work other stuff, too. That yeah. helps you also. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I'm getting sold here. <laughs> I, I worked with a coach very briefly um, uh, when I first started doing triathlons. And I, I mean, it was, I couldn't tell how much of it was the coaching versus just kind of coming off the couch, you know, where I, I had a sort of, you know, I was going to the gym and things, but it's, it's easy to make those big gains early. And so I, I couldn't really tell how much of it was just, well, you're now you're just moving and therefore you're improving. But in retrospect, um, I will say I never had the kind of gains that I had then where somebody was looking at my data, looking at my workouts, ensuring that I was doing, um, and this was probably about half as scientific as it needed to be. Like we weren't using a training peaks or we weren't really analyzing the data. Um, mm-hmm. It was just more kind of mm-hmm. analyzing, like we would do a, um, a time trial test, uh, I think like once every three months, let's say, and then we would just kind of analyze heart rate and things like that. Yes. Yeah. Having that accountability. And also if you're investing time and resources towards someone to hold you accountable, you don't want to waste that. Yeah. Yeah. It shows shows a level of commitment. And I think that that's probably what I hear get brought up most of all with a coach is just the accountability. And I think that while that is very important, um, the other side though, is all the things that you've started to explain here, which are, you know, where you start to get scientific and saying, Great that you want to do intervals, but maybe intervals aren't the right thing for you to reach your 
sub three hour marathon, let's say? You know, the accountability word is thrown around a lot in a lot of the coaching articles I, I've, I've read about why do you need a coach? But, you know, the truth is I never think of myself as holding people accountable. Mm. I don't to me, I, I, I am not a Catholic nun with a ruler like I'm not going to beat you. What I see myself more is coming alongside as a teacher okay. and guiding you toward what is best specifically for you. And I expect you to help me help you yeah. figure that out. Yeah. And I would assume if you, if, if that's what you need, um, maybe, maybe there's other things standing in your way. Maybe coaching isn't where you are. Um, like if you need to be motivated, maybe either you're in the wrong sport or you're, I don't know, looking at your goals all wrong or, you know, whatever. I w- I wouldn't go so far to say that because honestly, almost everybody that comes to me for coaching has a problem that needs to be solved. And they're all highly motivated people, but we all get into these situations. Look, I could have sat in that hospital room and been (laughs) completely demotivated to to keep trying. Um, If I didn't didn't have the knowledge about how I could get myself out of that situation. But but if if you if you if you gain the knowledge or if someone comes along beside you and just believes that you can gain the knowledge and that they can help you be encouraged doing the work yeah uh that that's a game changer and so i hate to say that i hate to say that i don't work with unmotivated people i'm not a i, I used to have kind of a high-minded view of myself. Oh, I'm not a cheerleader. I'm Mm -hmm. a coach. I work with highly motivated elites. But the truth is most people are highly motivated by the time they come to me. They just don't know what's affecting their motivation. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I guess my point was like you're uh, being a cheerleader versus being somebody who is trying to organize an intervention (laughs) is uh, a big difference between the two. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about, so I, I think I understand the principles of all of the work that you're putting into your body. Let's talk for a second about rest, because that is an area where I know, like the feeling that you had before you T-boned the deer, I've been um, in that situation where you just have this amazing workout and your instinct is to go do that again. You know, like, man, I felt great. Yeah. I'm either going to go longer or I'm going to do it again tomorrow and I'm just going to drive myself right into the ground. So let's talk a little bit about rest. Uh, Well, we are so blessed in our world today to have smart people that figured out this whole thing about heart rate variability and how to track it in a non-invasive way. Mm. So the idea of resting heart rate and taking it every morning has been around a long time, but who wants to do that? Yeah. Like by the time I took my resting heart rate in the mornings myself, my heart rate would be high because I was stressed trying to take my resting heart rate. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, because it's sympathetic, it's sympathetic. It's on an autonomic nervous system drive. That is really what heart rate variability is, is tracking. And that is, you're, you're either being driven more by your sympathetic system, the fight and flight and freeze, uh, uh, no, fight and flight system, or you're being driven by the parasympathetic system, which is rest, digest, freeze. Okay. So um, 
heart rate variability has been is proving to be highly accurate in letting you know when your central system is pretty much ready for the next day's strain. Now, it's not perfect, and uh, but it's it is pretty close. And I relied on it very heavily. I relied on these metrics very heavily. I think you read the article yep. that Training put, Peaks put during my COVID experience. What the recovery metrics were looking like. There was a there was there were uh, dramatic changes, dramatic inexplicable changes uh, that the company whose device I was working with, with Whoop tracked and, and found out that those metrics were um, predicting the presence of COVID. Interesting. So, okay. yeah. So I'm still learning about it. Um, okay. But what I've seen over time, so I relied on the metrics very heavily in the beginning because I was afraid to create too much overload with in the early days of COVID. We just mm-hmm. didn't know what was going on, right? Right. So we, I was afraid to create too much overload in my athletes for two reasons. One, we didn't know when events were going to come back online. You don't want to drive someone silly way, way too early. Okay. But, but, but secondly, um, what are, what were the implications of getting COVID for everyone? We just didn't know. And I, my thing was, if you're going to, you're going to get COVID because you don't have any immunity. Okay. Training, training hard to, uh, to protect your immunity Training too hard and worrying about it putting you in in some kind of immunity danger is pointless because we don't have immunity at all right. to this particular strain of you know disease. Um, however, I didn't want you exhausted having to fight this unknown strain of disease. Right. So I was using the metrics very heavily and religiously. In the beginning, if it said green, we trained. If it said amber, we modified. If it said red, we did, we rested. Wow. Okay. And it's just that binary. So it's it's you're looking or not binary, but the it's that clear where your resting your resting heart rate is that big an indicator for pending danger. It is now. There there are some limitations. Um, my legs aren't always recovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning metabolic pro- product has not flushed enough and or um, my glycogen, muscular glycogen has not repleted enough after hard training day after day to go out and train again. I might have a green score because now I'm centrally adapted. So my cardiovascular my, my my heart rate variability. My heart is saying, "Yeah, you're you're ready." Okay. But sometimes the legs don't follow. Okay. And that's that's a big flaw with following the data religiously because I can get a whole week of green scores, but I cannot go out and do, say, three minute intervals every day. Okay. My legs just won't do it. You know. Okay. And we've seen this from the Tour de France data data too with the heart heart rate variability metrics they're they they are doing big scores 
big daily strains day after day. Um, and the heart rate variability is tracking that, but you, you still might not have the legs, even if, even if the score is showing you you recovered to be able to execute. So there is a lag with the legs. Okay. Um, and so is this uh, where, is this where something like RPE comes in rate of perceived exertion where you. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So in heart one rate. Sorry, go ahead. In the, in the, I'm sorry. In, I just wanted to qualify in oh, the good. era of power, in the era of power, many people, including myself kind of threw heart rate aside for a long time. Um, and that, but heart rate variability shows me, and also some of the trainings I do now that are heart rate based versus power based to force a particular adaptation, um, have shown me just how valuable heart rate is as a, as a component of training Mm. and also the rate of perceived exertion. I mean, you need that anyway. You need, you need to be able to say, I'm not feeling it today. I don't care if my green score says 91% and I, my legs feel ready. I'm just not feeling it. Um, and, and you need to pay attention to that and you need, you need that self-knowledge in races too. Yeah. So when you say you modify then, does that become, we're not going to do an interval day today? Does that mean we're going to do shorter intervals or less power? Does it depend on how yucky you feel in the legs? Uh, yeah, all those things. Yeah. You can manipulate, there's many ways to manipulate load. The other thing that's really cool about these recovery metrics, which is unexpected, is I've been amazed at how many days I could train hard Mm. versus following um, even some of the best experts giving talks will, will, will give you a sample week of what it looks like. Now, they're giving you a general sample. They're not they're not working with you specifically. But if you followed ju- if you followed the best experts, best example of a week, you might not be training as hard as you can based on your own metrics. Yeah, I was gonna, and that's what's that's well, what's been astounding to me. Yeah, sorry, I, I was going to ask, like, have you woken up on a certain day, or had one of your athletes wake up on a certain day and um, been like, oh, you know, I'm I'm way overtrained. There's no way that I can do it. And then you look at your data and it just kind of gives you that level of confidence. Um, you know what I mean? <laughs> some days, yeah, some days, you know, when, you, when you're programmed and structured, you, you sort of look forward to your rest day. And um, I've kind of given up, I've kind of given up the attachment to that and been a little bit more flexible mm. in the sense that uh, I might have a rest day planned but if I if I come to, into the rest day with a big score and I've got the legs, I, I'm going to change it. Mm. Okay. And I've been doing that for my athletes too. Cool. And and also it has changed what our rest days look like. That's another cool thing. Meaning so how? it has. Well, I've gone from sort of what I call adaptation or regeneration days. And you do need those where it's just simply you're doing the neuromuscular pattern of whatever sport you're in. But, you know, you're jogging lightly as a runner or you're riding 30 minutes easy on on, on, a, on the rollers okay. or the bike or just yeah. just, a you know, a coffee ride or something. For, but for some, some don't need it to be that easy at various times. Sometimes the I can introduce some structure even on in the recovery day. And then mm. I can work a system that we didn't expect. Okay. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this is, um, I'm glad we did this because I, uh, you know, again, I had my, um, I had my suspicions. I mean, we all know, again, it's, it's the, what I started out the conversation with, which is we all know intuitively and, and empirically that coaching is something that we take on in so many other parts of our lives where we bring in an expert to tell us how to do something. We often lack that accountability side of while, while that expert is telling us what to do, we're measuring and making sure that, that it's, uh, um, that it's effective, but I think it's been really fascinating talking to you and understanding a little bit better um, how variable that data is and how, uh, I guess, specifically it can guide your recovery, your load, your workouts, all of those things, and and start to achieve goals on a whole different scale than just sort of going everything by feel. It is. And if you, if you take it, taken nothing away from this conversation, by now, you know, that my approach is holistic. I'm trying, mm-hmm. I'm dealing with the whole organism, body, yeah. soul, spirit, mind, all of it. And, um, the, the beautiful thing about the recovery metrics is you can capture the life stress. So in my VA, VIP client, who's a high level executive manager for a major company, I can capture his work stress. Mm. For um, one of my treasured but somewhat emotionally unstable <laughs> client who has a lot of relational stress, okay. I can now capture that Wow! and modify their training for it. And is this all through something like, like Whoop? Yep. Okay. So uh, help me on that one re- real quick. So not that I want to turn this into a, um, a commercial for Whoop, but... Um, something like an Apple watch that is going to measure your heart rate and just give you the raw data. I'm assuming then whoop that then just takes that the next level and then gives you back an analysis of that data. Whoop has a lot of different metrics. It's their space. It's their niche space. Uh, so they're an expert at it. I'm pretty sold on them, but there are a variety of competitors. You're right. Uh, what I like about them in particular is how, easy and applied everything is I'm more I'm you know I got a degree in physiology so I could apply it not Mm. so that I could explain all the science really well there are (laughs) other people who are much better at that um and whoop is really good at applying it and putting it in user-friendly little graphs and stuff I have one athlete that calls it she calls it her tattle bracelet oh nice (laughs) she she can't fudge not getting good sleep anymore that's funny she can't You can't lie to yourself about how good your sleep hygiene is. Yeah, sleep is definitely an area where I and I'm sure a lot of people, especially these days with so much going on, uh, definitely struggle with. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's so damn important. I know these things. I it know is. these things, but I just, I, I just need to get cracked over the head once in a while. Well, a good coach helps you see the light helps you know what to look for, uh, shortcuts the process, it puts your attention where it needs to be. There you go. I think that's well said. And, <laughs> and helps you grow and enjoy the process. Yeah. That's really what it's about. Well, that's great. And, and then give back to everyone around you. How many athletes do you typically train at an, any, or coach at any given time? I am not a Walmart coach. I am not 
a big business owner. I am a boutique coach who works with private, small few. Okay. Uh, I keep, I keep it small. I, because I, I really work with them. I, I develop pretty strong relationships. Um, they trust me with a lot of personal information. Um, and I, I like to be involved in, in the, the, the development process, whether that's your beginner recreational weekend warrior who then becomes a master's national level or even world level athlete, or if you're a promising junior who signs a pro contract, I like to be involved in that, uh, development process. And, um, I think to do that well requires a lot of attention to each individual. And I want to give it, give that. Yep. How long does somebody typically work with you? Do you have do you have clients who you've been working years with, or is it something that kind of ebbs and flows with with how their season's going? What's a typical profile in a relationship with one of your athletes? I typically work with, with people for years. Okay. Um, there was a time when I had high turnover, but that was more about me learning what kind of client I wanted to work with than mm-hmm. it was the client themselves, I think. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, there are a few who come and go and I also do some consulting type projects. I also work with teams. I have a UCI sport director license as well. I, I sometimes work with teams and or groups and I also sometimes run clinics. I love teaching, uh, what I call race side or being right there with you. I love that. That's, that's one of my faves. So I make room for that. And that's why I keep my core group of clients small. Um, the big, any big business owner coaches who are listening to this, we're thinking, we're thinking to themselves, well, how is she making money? Well, exactly. This has always been a spiritual (laughs) thing for me. It's always been a, uh, uh, mission and, uh, and my purpose and the resources take care of themselves. <laughs> Got, it. Got it. Yeah. Last question on this then is, um, you talked about kind of building the fundamentals first, um, at the start of our conversation here. If obviously, uh, you can't coach them all and right. Would you recommend somebody? So let's say I'm just getting into running, I want to run a marathon, let's say. I've set that as my goal. Would you recommend um, getting into, like hire the coach today, get the fundamentals down, do it that way versus, you know, do a, you know, a Hal Ligden um, training plan, you know, sort of, you know, do a guided tour type of thing until you really, maybe hit a def- different level of commitment or achievement or whatever else? I think, I think, I think to answer your question. So. And I don't, I don't mean to make it about the marathon, obviously. I mean, biking, um, you know, so yeah. like even talking about like bike handling skills, maybe. So would you throw in there? Well, first I would go to a clinic and start learning some real bike handling skills first before I, um, like if you only have money, let's say to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go do Disney marathon. I know that's going to cost me a couple of grand to go down there and stay and do that in six months. And in the meantime, mm-hmm. you know, where should I spend my money to get the most bang for the buck, I guess, for, um, you know, to achieve my, my first marathon potential. 
Oh, well, that's a difficult question. Let let me put it into bike racing terms because it's it's an easier context for me to to think it through. So let's say someone wants to go do their first Grand Fondo. Okay. um, And let's say that they've already got a certain level of equipment. So let's say that expenditure is already made. Okay. Um, uh, I'm going to assume if they've already made that expenditure and they've they've chosen that as uh, as a goal, they already have a cycling community of some sort too. Local group riders or someone who they've been riding with that explains what they're doing. so, so I guess really steps one and two by what you're saying is make sure you've got some halfway decent equipment where that isn't a liability to yes. get into your community, get on some group rides or whatever is applicable to whatever, you know, if you're doing a Fondo or a cyclocross race or a mountain bike race or whatever, but get into that community and start doing some of those rides. Yes. Okay. Get out there and do it. Meet the pe- other people who do it talk to the other people. Now there's a ton of information these days. We know that not all of it's good. Again, a coach can help you sort through that. Um, but, um, cycling is a skills oriented thing. You can really hurt yourself and others without good skill. Mm -hmm. So I would say put your money into skills and how to do that. You can hire a coach for it. You can attend a clinic or a camp. Maybe it's, joining your local club and they're teaching you skills. Uh, if you're, if you're starting to, if you're just starting, if you're a beginner and you're just starting, obviously you need to ride for a while, yeah. you know, you need to ride a bit. You need to understand what it's like to be in a group and what the skills are. That's where I would put my first bit of, uh, resources and okay. attention. Yep. Fair enough. Well, cool. Well, it was super fun uh, sitting down and diving into this. Again, I I had my suspicions and they've all been confirmed. So um, I'm going to definitely be on the hunt for this. Well, I I hope it was valuable information, Troy. I don't know. And forgive me for interrupting you several times. It's, it's always, (laughs) it's always tough when we're doing the, um, the phone calls always have just enough latency to kind of step on each other with that. So um, yeah, if it ever if it ever sounded like that, I think that's just more a symptom of of the latency in the line. But um, yeah, I really okay. appreciate you coming on. I will post a link in the show notes to the article that you wrote on Training Peaks because that was oh, nice. what Thank absolutely um, sold me on having you on. The um, it really, I mean, just reading that article kind of changed my view of um, coaching in a way, like the the, you did it in an extremely digestible way. Um, how you dove into your data, your sleep data, your recovery data, those types of things. You saw COVID coming in your own body, those types of things. So I, it it is a really profound, I think very, um, concise, um, article and I'll definitely put it in the show notes for you. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate all of that. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Well, uh, we're, we're just coming across the finish line. So any last uh, parting words of wisdom for our listeners? I think everyone out there, be strong, take heart, hope. Um, we've had some hard times, but we're going to come back stronger, faster, hopefully smarter, and, and most <laughs> importantly, kinder. 
Let's hope. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah. said, Beth. Thank you very much. Well, everybody, that is the show. I hope you enjoyed it. More people racing more often, having more fun in the process is our mission at Athlinks. Thanks again for Beth Leisure Hudson uh, enlightening us about coaching. The best way to support this podcast is to be sure to click subscribe on iTunes or follow on Spotify to be notified um, of the new shows. And please take just a couple of minutes to give us a five-star rating and a quick review on iTunes. So we do a special post for each episode on Instagram. Look for the post for episode 22 with a picture of Beth. If you have any comments or questions, or we are at Athlinks, um, or just shoot us an email at podcast at athlinks.com. Share it with friends far and wide to help spread the word. And until next time, happy racing, everyone. Okay, thank you. No, wow. thank you. That was great.